No, I don't. I, I shouldn't say this because it reduces my credibility as a sports historian, but I don't like to watch sports. <laughs> One of the things that got me into this field of study is wondering, why are people so passionate about this very strange activity of people running around in shorts? What gets people so excited about that? Trust me, I'm like a smart person. Welcome to Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast from The Conversation that asks academics to get right down in the real nitty-gritty. This month we're asking, what is sports value? We'll explore why nations spend billions on major international events, dive into the overlooked and wonderful history of girl barrackers at the AFL, and find out why this World Cup might be a win for soccer fans, but it'll probably be a loss for FIFA. First, let's talk about sports diplomacy, which is a lot like regular diplomacy, only with more shorts. I talked to Associate Professor Barbara Keyes from the University of Melbourne about why countries spend vast amounts of money to strut their stuff on the international stage. Barbara is the person you heard at the start of the podcast. Can you please introduce yourself? I'm Barbara Keyes. I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Melbourne. My research at the moment focuses on the moral claims made by the organizers of international sports events like the Olympic Games. So why do we believe that the Olympic Games and other mega events like that promote peace, foster mutual understanding, uh, combat discrimination? Why do we think they're so good for the world? Does sports diplomacy work? Sports diplomacy can be effective. I mean, any kind of diplomacy can be effective or ineffective depending on how it's used, who uses it, why, whether it makes sense in that particular context. So it's not any better or worse than any other kind of diplomacy, but because sport has some particular characteristics, it's better suited for certain kinds of goals than for others. So it can be quite powerful, and it can be deployed in very powerful and effective ways. What are the characteristics of sport that makes it a unique vehicle? Well, we know that the Olympic Games are the most popular single event on the planet. So half of the world's population partakes of the Olympic Games in some form or another, and there is no other single event which gathers that kind of popular audience. So immediately, if you're the host, you are getting half the world's attention, at least for the summer games, I should say. The winter games are a bit less um, important. And the World Cup has a similar massive audience. So one thing is simply media popular attention. You have the spotlight. The other thing is this this set of ideals associated with these international events, more so with the Olympic Games than with the World Cup, the, the Men's Soccer World Cup. I should say that all of these international sports competitions are now sort of obliged to say that they promote human rights and that they foster peace. None has done it with the same vigor and um, uh, 
enthusiasm as the Olympic Games, but they all sort of do make broad moral claims. And one reason why sports events can be effective um, in diplomacy is that people believe those claims. Whether they have any evidence behind them or not, people believe them. And so that's one of the reasons why I think the South Korea uh, Olympic Games were able to foster this momentous rapprochement between North and South Korea is because they seemed to provide an apolitical space for peaceful endeavors. But if these sporting organizations are making moral claims and standing up for human rights, isn't that an inherently political position? Doesn't that put them in the political space? So, yes, absolutely. That's a really good question. And it's absolutely true that pretty much everything these international sports organizations do has political implications and is mostly heavily politicized. The reason why the rhetoric um, sticks is that the way they use that rhetoric is to say, we don't help one nation or another. We simply focus on athletes getting to know each other and understanding each other and competing on the same terrain by the same rules. We don't favor one nation or another. We are egalitarian. Uh, We are non-discriminatory. So they sort of set themselves in a realm outside of politics, even though it's very obvious that, say, a country is not going to spend $50 billion to host the Winter Games, as, as Russia did with, with the Sochi Winter, Winter Games in 2014. They're not going to do that unless they're getting a big, big political payoff. Um. I want to share one of my favorite stories I came across when I was um, researching this segment. It was the toothpaste story. I don't know if you've come across it. I don't think so. In um, The New York Times reported that in 1976, there was a uh, soccer game between Greece and China in Greece. And before the match, um, this bombastic music started playing over the loudspeaker and all the Chinese players thought it was the Greek national anthem, so they stood to attention. And because they stood to attention, well, the Greek players thought it was the Chinese national anthem and they stood to attention. And then all the spectators stood to attention. And then a toothpaste ad came on. <laughs> That's great. It's just, it's one of my favorite stories. But I think it also really illustrates how, um, you know, these sporting events give us a bit of a template. Well, the International Olympic Committee has more members than the UN. And it's one of the main vehicles through which emerging nations take their place on the international stage and say, we are a nation. That marching in that opening ceremony with your flag and being seen by the world is really important. So a lot of smaller countries or newer countries participate not to win gold medals or to be on that tally of top 10 countries, but, but just to be seen and to participate. Those are the good things. There are, of course, um, darker sides to these international sports events. We've seen a lot of controversies and uh, scandals about doping, about corruption, bribery, money laundering, fraud, um, a whole bunch of soccer, International Soccer Federation officials were indicted and pled guilty, basically in a bribery scandal. Um, 
Qatar, the country that is hosting the 2022 FIFA Soccer World Cup, is um, a, not a nice democratic country. And it's estimated by Human Rights Watch and other groups that 4,000 workers will die constructing the stadiums for those events. And they're tremendously commercialized, of course. Uh, co- corporations pay hundreds of millions of dollars to be associated with these events because we will buy more products because we will stand up for toothpaste commercials. Do you think it weakens the moral stance of um, events like the Olympics and the World Cup to be hosted by countries like this? Does that not erode the apolitical message they're trying to send? It does, but it also doesn't have to. I think we saw in the case of China in 2008 with the summer Beijing Olympic Games that China was, although it's a an autocratic country and uh, engages in large-scale systematic human rights abuses, it pulled off a very successful games that helped change the global narrative about China. All of a sudden, everybody realized that China is a very wealthy, rising country. That narrative was somehow visualized for the world in, a, in an extraordinary way. On the other hand, if you look at the, the World Cup that's happening now in Russia, yes, both uh, the Soccer Federation, FIFA, and Russia are both what we would call tarnished brands right now. Russia has been embroiled in doping scandals in terms of the sports world, but also um, has been engaged in um, international aggression that has diminished its reputation, at least in the West. And uh, the FIFA corruption scandals have diminished FIFA's credibility. So I think, at least in terms of the Russian World Cup, people will be focused on the games and the soccer, but as a as a brand, the World Cup is being diminished. It was at this point in the interview that I asked Barbara what could be considered a rude question in the context. I asked, how significant is this? Has sports diplomacy ever actually changed the world? The one instance that comes to mind most that comes to mind in regard to that question is the 1988 Summer Olympic Games in Seoul in South Korea. They happened at a time when the South Korean government was a dictatorship. And they wanted to showcase the fact that they were modernizing, that they had developed, that they achieved a great deal of economic growth, that they could stage this very complex event Um, But right before the game started, there were uh, demonstrations and unrest. And the government found that it had two choices. Either it could maintain control by brutally suppressing the protests, but then have all of the great publicity it was hoping to get from the Olympic Games tarnished, or it could cede some control, deliver concessions, um, share power, essentially South Korea ended up democratizing because of the conjunction of the protests and the upcoming Olympic Games. So the government was forced into a situation where in order to salvage its reputation as an Olympic host, it had to reform its government. 
FIFA and Russia are both tarnished brands, as Barbara Keys described them, what does that mean for the all-important sponsorships? Conversation editor Justin Bergman asks, how are brands coping with a, to put it mildly, commercially tricky World Cup? For advertisers, few events feature more prominently on the global sporting calendar than the World Cup. In 2014, some 3.2 billion people in 207 countries and territories tuned in to watch the World Cup in Brazil, a global audience unlike any other in sport. The world's largest brands have historically longed to be a part of this commercial bonanza. Nike, Coca-Cola, Adidas, Visa. Every four years, these brands and others have tried to outdo one another with the splashiest ads featuring the biggest name players and celebrities. Who could forget the classic Nike ad in 1998, for instance, in which the Brazilian team started a pickup football game in an airport? Coming into this year's World Cup in Russia, however, brands were noticeably more subdued. Following years of corruption scandals at FIFA, many companies like Sony, Emirates, Continental, and Castrol walked away from their sponsorship deals with the organization. Those that have remained have taken a slightly different approach in terms of their marketing campaigns as well. Clearly, um, FIFA as an organization has had its, its, pit, its problems uh, and, and pitfalls over the years. And these have all been you know, well recorded and, and well documented. We've seen a change of president in, in recent years. Um, I think for those commercial partners, I think in recent years, they've started to feel some pressure on them as well as to what their role is in terms of, of helping an organisation. I'm Associate Professor Con Stavros from the School of Economics, Finance and Marketing at RMIT University. He says the past few years have been tricky for brands in terms of how they position themselves vis-a-vis a tarnished brand like FIFA. There was a time where a sponsor essentially said, we're giving up some money, uh, we're buying some rights, we're buying the chance to leverage or activate our brand. But it's far more sophisticated than that these days. I think anytime you sponsor an organisation, it's a strategic alliance these days, and you are essentially, uh, by joining that other partner, you are essentially putting your stamp on what that organisation does. You are essentially uh, complicit in all the actions that they that they undertake. So there was a time, I think, when uh, transgressions would occur or stories or allegations would be made, and nobody would think to call sponsors. And that's only a decade or so ago. These days, the media will pick up the phone and call these sponsors and say, here are the allegations, what are you doing about it? And a brand can't simply say, none of our business, it's up to them. A brand now has to say, well, we, we condone it, we don't condone it, here's our stance, we've got to be seen to act. Andrew Hughes, a marketing lecturer at Australian National University, says the worry for companies is something called brand transference. Brand transference is a theory that relates to how we transfer associations, experiences, preferences and likings from one brand onto another brand which is associated with that brand. So in the case of sports, it's the uh, athlete or the celebrity being used in a message is then going to transfer that onto the primary brand of the sporting good manufacturer like Nike, for example, using Ronaldo. For this year's World Cup, the connection with FIFA was just one concern. The other is the host, Russia. In previous World Cups, the host country, or continent, has been a major element in marketing campaigns. 
Nike, for instance, celebrated Africa's first World Cup in 2010 with images of football fans cheering their teams across the continent. This year, however, Russia has been noticeably absent from World Cup commercials. Many brands have gone the safe route instead, like the Adidas ad, featuring celebrity endorsers like Lionel Messi and tennis star Caroline Wozniacki. Andrew Hughes says inclusivity and diversity are also big themes in this year's World Cup ads, as well as social media tie-ins that focus on the experience of being at the event. As an example, he points to Nike's latest offering, which features Brazil's national team again. The Nike ad was one where they've pulled in people from all across the world, all across the globe. Um, they're making this something which anyone on any market can connect with. But considering it's a global event, they need to do that. They need to have a global tie-in where you don't feel left out, even if you're in um, Australia or New Zealand or another far-flung market, you don't feel as though you're being cut out from everything. Um, so the ads are focusing on that bigger sort of theme of how you as a person can be uh, involved. As an example too, with a, with a Nike ad at the very end, they have a call to action as it were, to sign up or gear up. Now that's unique. We haven't seen that before in an ad used in the World Cup where they actually make that straight call to action from the consumer. If you can't attend, in other words, then sign up for updates on your phone on mobile marketing, but also then gear up through a direct tie-in to buying merchandise and, um, and gear associated with the people in the World Cup. The other big change at this year's tournament has been the arrival of Chinese signage at Russian stadiums. As Western brands have walked away from FIFA in recent years, Chinese brands have rushed to fill the vacuum. The mobile phone maker Vivo is one of them. Interestingly, its commercial does feature a bit of Russian, as well as kids playing football in China, naturally. It's time to dig uh, certainly in China, they've put a plan in action where they want soccer to be a big sport, one that they want to heavily invest in. There's the Chinese Super League that's attracting star players from all around the world. Um, the Chinese national team can't seem to qualify for a, for a World Cup, which is good for Australia, but the soccer is my country because it's one less team we've got to compete against uh, directly. But that will change. There'll be more spots from 2026 onwards, if, even if they don't qualify for 2022. But at the moment, FIFA does its... FIFA does its commercial relationship on two levels. They have what they call partners, and this is a, a model that's kind of been derived from the Olympic Games back in the 1980s. And they've got seven partners going into the, um, the World Cup in Russia. But the interesting one that's come on board in the last year or so is Wanda. Um, and, and Wanda is a diversified company um, out of China that has got um, you know, prop their property development, their construction, their cinemas, their, um, they're worth Googling if you have never heard of them before, as, as I hadn't when they, when they first made that, that announcement. They've been involved in sport though, so they, they're big sponsors of the Chinese Super League, uh, the major soccer league that's in China, and they also own a 20% stake in Atletico Madrid. They've been, they've been with Atletico Madrid for a number of years now, 20% stake as I said, and they clearly are putting a, a feeler out there and saying, we want to be part of the global game. For Chinese companies, there are also fewer hang-ups when it comes to brand transference and FIFA. Here's Andrew Hughes again. I think it's a great opportunity for these brands to get into a, a global event at a reduced price. I mean, these other, these bigger Western brands and more mature markets have left because they've got other opportunities elsewhere 
or they're probably thinking to themselves, maybe we've seen peak football happen where we've got the highest involvement now as in the past with the World Cup. So it's a good opportunity for them to step away and maybe get involved in other events. Um, so for these brands in places like the Asia-Pacific, in particular like China and like Hisense and Lenovo being tied into the World Cup, it makes a lot of corporate sense because they can get bigger exposure across the world now into markets where it's been very, very hard for them to penetrate, but also very, very hard to develop a resonance with the consumers. So this is a great opportunity for them to come in. They're not so worried either about any sort of geopolitical issues with a place where an event's been held, um, either this World Cup or the next one in Qatar. So they're not so worried about any issues which people may have. And so they're less likely to be concerned about those sort of things as they move forward. And so for those brands in these developing markets, it's a great opportunity to connect with their consumers who are just waking up, as it were, to how great things like the World Cup are to be involved in and to be active with um, as a consumer. The next World Cup in Qatar in 2022 could prove similarly problematic for Western brands. But after that, the tournament shifts back to North America, which promises to be highly profitable for those companies that do stick around. All right, so we can talk about money and sponsorship and politics, but obviously that's not the actual value of sport. Sport can only be used as a tool of commerce or statescraft because of the passion and commitment and fervour that fans and players bring to the competitions. In the wake of the highly successful first women's AFL season, conversation intern Phoebe Roth explored the vibrant legacy of women supporting Aussie sport. In terms of the football codes around the world, Australian rules football has had this kind of unique status as something where women make up almost half the crowd. And that seems like it goes a long way back. That's Dr Matthew Klugman from Victoria University. Uh, so my name is Matthew Klugman and I'm a research fellow with the Institute for Health and Sport as well as a senior lecturer in sports studies. Matthew has done research into female spectators at Australian rules games during the late 1800s and early 1900s, looking at their experiences through the lens of a number of female columnists who wrote in a Melbourne newspaper at the time. Women who attended the football were known as female barrackers or girl barrackers, and while a few of them were more interested in the fashion and being seen, for the most part, these female barrackers got right into the game. There's no reticence in their passion. You know, they're there to enjoy and to uh, experience the pleasures of barracking. Uh, and there's a lot of agency in, in the, that they use to take up that space. They're not asking permission to be able to attend games. They're just attending games and enjoying shouting out at the players and at the umpires uh, like the men are doing. It was about 1909 when these female barrackers began to ruffle a few feathers. Some men felt that women should not attend football games, or at the very least, they should be quiet if they were present. One letter writer to the newspaper Punch, amusingly dubbed Meteor, wrote this letter into the paper in June 1909. Should girls go to the football is a question that has been much discussed of late. 
A lot of those who have entered into the argument take a point of view long favoured by the opponents of womanhood suffrage and declare that the home is a woman's proper sphere. In September of the same year, a politician called Samuel Morga sparked further debate when he announced that a leading doctor in Melbourne had informed him that the young women of Melbourne were putting their health in danger by yelling and getting excited at the football. Fortunately, the views of people like Meteor and Morga didn't receive a whole lot of support. In fact, they were often mocked. Punch printed a satirical poem urging women to follow this so-called medical advice. Oh Mary, Sarah, Annie, Flo, give heed to Morga's warning. If to the matches you must go, be mute or whisper very low when players you are scorning. Remember if you shout and yell at players hurly-burly, you're surely sounding your own knell. If loud and high your feelings swell, you're booked for dying early. Give heed to what we whisper, Mag. Quit roaring like the breakers. And if to football you must tag, why wear a nice becoming gag and knock the undertakers? Well, it was interesting because it didn't seem to get much support. I mean, 1909 is an interesting year in, in Melbourne and Victoria because there's a number of um, attacks on the rights of women, uh, both from the church and from politicians. And later there's a, a politician from Footscray who says that he's heard it on good medical authority that barracking is dangerous for women, dangerous for their health. But both this and the letter by Meteor are largely just greeted um, with disdain uh, and mocked. And so you get all these letters to the Herald mocking Meteor, a beautiful one by Comet saying, you know, how you know, it would be her privilege uh, to be at Meteor's home and, and to, to serve such wonderful celestial bodies. But there's this mocking tone as if, you know, it's just taken for granted that women should be able to attend. And there, there's even an editorial in the Herald which is really interesting because it says, it doesn't matter what we say, women have already said they're going to turn up and they are turning up. You know, we can't stop them. So it's the kind of, there's an acknowledgement of the agency of the women. Another cartoon in the Herald does a similar thing. It says, you know, the question of the day, should girls go to football? But at the end, the answer is, well, <laughs> they're already going, you know. So that, that space has already been won and it's not going to be taken off. Them. As the years wore on, women's attendance at the football didn't waver. We're yet to have the kind of historical specificity of someone mapping it out completely. But throughout the 20th century, it, it's clear that women r retain a really central role in the spectatorship of the game. And you know, even in my contemporary research, I spoke to a number of women who received their teams in a kind of matrilineal line. So I, I interviewed one woman who goes for Sydney, having gone for South Melbourne, and that was passed down by her mother and her mother's mother, who had been a publican in South Melbourne. And the kids adored going with her because she would forget herself every now and then and let loose with the language that she'd got from, from a, you know, a lifetime in the pubs. What do you think that it adds, it has added over history and adds now to the game that women are such equally active participants in, in supporting it? I think it kind of, it helps cement Australian rules football as the cultural language of Melbourne. You know, so not everyone follows Australian rules football, but Melbourne is one of those rare places where it's assumed that everyone does. And where who do you barrack for? 
is such central language for girls and boys, women and men. So there's a richness to that. And I think it's also part of why when we started to get uh, women playing Australian rules football, uh, when those opportunities were made to move that up to a more elite and national level, the crowds immediately came. Uh, so there was already that wellspring of support uh, and a space where women kind of have a cultural ownership of the game. I think men are not, the, the male culture in general, I think still has a, uh, is, is not completely comfortable with that. And so although women have that ownership, uh, every female fan I've spoken to has had at least one moment in their life where someone said, oh, yeah, but you just like it for the tight shorts or these kind of jokes about voyeurism. So I think what this paper helped show me was that it's not that men have created the space for women to come. It's more that Melbourne is a place where women have had that agency and the possibilities and, and taken that cultural space and never let it go, regardless of whether the men welcome that or not. The female columnists oscillated between views that ladies who went to the football were degrading themselves by being part of something so riotous, to praising women's attendance and their knowledge of the game. In 1912, one of the columnists, Cleo, wrote, It really is a marvellous thing, the stronghold football has over those who never have and never will play the game themselves. I asked Matthew what Cleo might think of where we are in Australia today. I find Cleo a fascinating figure because... Um, she kind of grapples with uh, kind of key fears, fears of her time, um, but then kind of finds a place within it and, and can kind of surprise you with at times quite conservative and then kind of embracing it. So, you know, even when she was heavily criticising the female barrackers, she then defended women against the Archbishop of Melbourne's claim that they were kind of promiscuous harlots you know, and said they were, you know, a fine show of strong womanhood in all their their clothing finery that that was getting criticism. So I think, I, you know, I think she, it would be great to show it to her. And, I, you know, I think she'd have concerns in part with the brutality of the game, but I think she would also embrace it and see um, how much the game means to the women who are playing it as well as to the spectators. And, and you know, I think that there's that aspect of, uh, the AFLW, what, one of the things it's done so well is, is um, yeah, there's, there's these spectator passions at the games already um, and people love it. You know, I love it. And, um, yeah, those I go with it, you know, adore, adore it. So I think she would be uh, very open to that and, and also enjoy it, or at least I'd hope so. If you like Trust Me, I'm an Expert, you should check out The Anthill, a podcast from our colleagues over at The Conversation UK. Their latest episode is all about twins, from what it's like to be one, to the way that twins are at the forefront of research into understanding the human condition, like whether ageing is more influenced by our genes or environment. Another way to demonstrate it is that in those cohorts, the old ones, those who survived to adulthood, 
The identical twins on average died 10 years apart, while the fraternal twins on average died 18 years apart. So it, it shows that despite that you have the same gene and uh, grew up in the same childhood environment, it's not kind of your destiny. That's The Anthill from The Conversation UK. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation, where we bring you the stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. Special thanks today to Justin Bergman, Phoebe Roth and all the academics who contributed to this episode. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks and we've used music in this episode from the Free Music Archives.